0: The very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Skagit Farmers Supply operates three full-service agronomy centers, trained agronomists, precision equipment, and a full range of crop protection. Located in western Washington, they market organic bagged products in stores throughout the Northwest, including Hawaii and Alaska, which are available for pickup or delivery. Skagit Farmers Supply services nurseries providing service to large-scale production as well as smaller rural living enthusiasts. Visit skagitfarmers.com today for all of your agronomy needs hey how was the grocery store
1: everything is getting more and more expensive
0: I know I stopped to get gas today and the price has gone back up
1: we need to talk about the budget again the cold weather is here and we're going to need a new furnace or maybe a heat pump I'm not sure which
0: well I was talking to Joe and he recommended Linden sheet metal they had a new heat pump put in the guys that came out to install it were professional and the heat pump works great He also said there's up to $2,400 in rebates that we can tap into. That sounds great.
2: Rebates and energy savings with a new furnace or heat pump? Let's call Linden Sheep
1: Metal and make an appointment.
3: Call Linden Cheap Metal today and talk to us about staying warm this winter. Because in a world where it seems everything is more expensive, there are ways to save on installation and monthly utility bills. And we can also help with low monthly payments. Linden Cheap Metal, serving the Northwest for over 80 years.
0: We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city. But sometimes things happen to snarl everything up depend on kgmi to keep you cruising to your destination with kgmi traffic alerts we'll tell you where the trouble spots are and if you see problems on the road give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word kgmi news talk 790 96.5 fm and kgmi.com
2: New laws in Washington state that were supposed to help farm workers are actually hurting them, taking away flexibility that they had in the past to make more money and support their families. What is this? It's the, the new laws regarding overtime in agricultural work. Welcome back to The Farming Show here on KGMI. I'm Dylan Honkoop. There was a hearing about this uh, down in Olympia just yesterday. I want to share some of that audio with you here this morning. Um, folks testifying from the farming community uh, about the actual stats, the impacts, what's going on, and, and why this situation. It's hard for someone to understand who's used to working in an office job or a factory job. Typical, more typical work for the broader population. Um uh, how this this 40 hour work week idea uh, overtime these kinds of rules don't fit necessarily work that exists in a natural system that has the ebb and flow we we say you, you know you make hay when the sun shines that means you don't when the sun doesn't shine when it rains you may have slow times you may not make money it's it the 40 hour work week to, you know, uh, year round doesn't that model doesn't fit what happens with farming and and again the unintended consequences of this new law is that it's actually making it harder for farm workers to support their families. It's making harder it harder for farms to produce food here in Washington State. Let's take a listen. And again, this was uh, yesterday in Olympia, the uh, State House of Representatives Labor and Workplace Standards Committee. Hearing from three folks, we, we don't have time for the whole meeting. It was forty-five minutes long, uh, but I, I wanted to share the the three folks uh, on a panel uh, that shared uh, fr- from the farming community. Also had some interesting questions from lawmakers for them during that. So we'll hear that coming up here on the farming show. Um, again, yesterday. Uh, At this hearing, uh, let's take a listen back. It starts with uh, Rosella Mosby. We have John Devaney with the State Tree Fruit Association. We've had him here on the show. Also, Rob Dollywall of Samson Farms right here in Whatcom County uh, out by Everson. Uh, But again, starts with Rosella Mosby. We've also had her on the program. She's now the president of the Washington Farm Bureau as well as uh, an Auburn area uh, vegetable grower. So let's let's take a listen in uh, to this committee meeting.
3: Good morning. Thank you Vice Chair Barry. And members of the committee for the record. my name is Rosella Mosby and I'm the elected president of Washington Farm Bureau, the state's largest agricultural organization representing over 300 agriculture commodities. First, I would like to thank um, Chair Sells for his many years of service to his district and this committee. Even when we have disagreed on specific issues, um, he has certainly always prioritized an open process for all stakeholders, and for that we are uh, certainly grateful. As I have traveled the state, um, meeting with farmers and ranchers in the last Year or so, they frequently referred to the overtime bill as one of the biggest threats to their ability to continue to operate in Washington State. As a result, we produced a survey to better understand these impacts on the entire agriculture workforce. A copy of those results with every answer we received are currently in your email inboxes. My testimony today is on the general findings of that survey. Although the overtime phase in is only one-third of the way through implementation, the feedback we received from members was staggering. Of those who responded, 23% stated their workers were frustrated and or left their job or had to find additional jobs. 54% wondered if their farm had a viable future or if they needed to just shut down. 71% reported their workers have lost work hours and or wages. 88% have experienced hardships or production losses. According to the Washington State Department of Agriculture, 50% of farms make $5,000 or less per year in revenue the reality of that statistic is that the majority of farmers have little or no ability to absorb the rising costs which is the reality of the farmer today next mr devaney will discuss some of these cost and workforce workforce constraints on our state's large and labor intensive tree fruit industry.
2: This is the farming show, by the way, here on KGMI, listening into yesterday's House Barry, Labor committee,
4: member committee meeting. We really appreciate this opportunity to speak to you today. Again, my name is John Devaney. I'm the president of the Washington State Tree Fruit Association. We're based in Yakima and represent the growers, packers, and marketers of apples, pears, cherries, and other tree fruits in our state. Washington is one of the best places in the world to grow tree fruit with a favorable climate that lets our growers produce really high-quality fruit with fewer inputs and lower environmental footprint than just about all of our competitors. It's also one of the best places in the nation and the world to work in an orchard. Washington State has some of the highest wages, labor and environmental standards, and enforcement mechanisms in the nation. While our growers have been able to remain competitive based on quality and innovations in productivity, Our state's high standards mean that we're never going to be a low-cost producer relative to our competition in other states and countries. Indeed, recently our growers have increasingly struggled with keeping their production costs within the limits that consumers are willing to pay, even for fruit of the highest quality. For example, over the past uh, 10 years, many of my growers have reported annual increases in their production costs of 7% or more. Uh, That has been uh, even before the inflationary surge of the past year. Uh, when those cost increases have, in some cases, gone into double digits for many key inputs. This is particularly challenging in the case of agricultural labor, which is the most significant variable cost of production in orchards. Hired labor accounts for 60% or more of the non-land production costs of tree fruit growers. Uh, And minimum wages for temporary agricultural workers, uh, for example, uh, have been increasing by 30% in the period 2017 to 2021. those, those That data is particularly relevant because it's based on surveys of all agricultural workers, so it's a good proxy for agricultural labor inflation. That 30% increase was at a time that the rest of the uh, economy was seeing 1% increases in overall employment costs based on uh, Bureau of Labor statistics data. Even as production prices have been increasing, uh, Prices received for fruit have not. Uh, Average wholesale prices for apples have remained relatively flat in nominal non-inflation-adjusted dollars for the past decade. Several major varieties, including Fuji, Honeycrisp, and Red Delicious prices, are actually lower uh, over the last two years than they were 10 years ago uh, in absolute dollar terms. So when you factor in the effects of inflation, the pressure on orchardists uh, to contain costs is immense. That leaves little flexibility or margin for error. Unfortunately, uh, at this time, they're, they're having to cut their biggest expense. They're having to limit hours very, very tightly for workers. Uh, and that is at a time for those workers when they are experiencing the same overall inflation in the economy that their employers are experiencing. It's very difficult for them. This is a particular challenge when the phase-in for agricultural overtime pay is considered. Farmers must always plan carefully to ensure that the cost of their farming practices, up to and including harvest, will be covered by the prices they receive. Uh, These careful plans are always subject to surprises from Mother Nature, uh, and these surprises are coming with increasing frequency as our climate becomes less predictable. As President Mosby was discussing, growers are telling us that a 50% increase in the average cost of, of production when you pass that overtime threshold is just makes some farming decisions financially impossible. Uh, it, the returns they will receive cannot be passed on, and they cannot incur those costs. This is particularly true when they're competing directly against states like New York and Oregon, which are also implementing agricultural overtime pay, but those, in those states they've received offsetting payments through, in the form of tax credits. For example, if you just go across the Columbia into Oregon, uh, growers can receive credits between 60 and 90 percent of overtime pay costs. In New York, all mandated overtime costs can be received by tax credit to offset those costs for those competing producers. In this environment, growers are forced to leave crops unharvested or to farm differently than they normally would. uh, And that results in lower quality and greater losses of fruit coming out of storage if it's picked at the wrong time. That is the the result of increasing food waste. These are really difficult choices that growers are facing. And I believe Mr. Dhalawal will be speaking to those in more detail and from his specific example. Again, we really appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues with you today, and it's a pleasure to be back in person. Again,
2: this is it, the Farming Show a here on KGMI.
0: Representative Alak-Doleo has a question.
2: Uh, here on, on KGMI, uh, listening into the House Labor and Workplace and Standards, and Standards, Standards and Committee
4: uh, the, meeting yesterday. tax
3: credits, I assume, rely on a state income tax?
4: Uh, or corporate business tax, depending on the state
5: uh-huh so in new york it is a do you no
4: know, corporate. i could check for you i don't want to be incorrect i know that they i've seen the percentages but i don't recall some questions back exactly and forth
2: right time. now again this was yesterday in olympia the house labor and workplace standards committee talking uh, about then, overtime in farming and, and the struggles right. that it's presented um and, sure and how, how it's the, the actually functioning on the ground
3: figure, it will tell- can you say That's that out again? of a Please. 2017 Washington Agriculture Census? Is and what was the figure? Uh, what did it measure? 50% of farms make $5,000 or less per year in revenue.
2: 50% of farms make $5,000 less or $5,000
3: or less per year in revenue. And does that
2: include their like paying
3: themselves or that would be. Your net revenue at the end of the day.
4: Net farm income?
3: Yeah, your net farm income. Mm-hmm. Okay. And
2: that's Rosello Mosby.
3: Filing as a farm, farms in all different sizes. So that means half of the farms in our state make $5,000 or less per year in revenue.
2: Rosella Mosby, uh, president of the Washington Farm Bureau, a grower Mosby. of vegetables in the yeah. Auburn area and, as well, and, just can answering you questions and there.
5: And share with us the challenges of finding labor. In the Yakima Valley, especially
4: agricultural labor is extremely hard to find. I think it was two years ago that Employment Security Department's uh, Work Source reported that, for for example, uh, for the H-2A temporary worker program, which is what growers will frequently try to use if they can't find domestic workers, and that requires joint recruitment through our state Work Source system to ensure that you give preference to and first search for domestic workers, and for all of the jobs in the state that were listed. Uh, potentially to be filled by temporary foreign workers, there were zero applicants uh, domestically for those agricultural jobs, and that is with higher-than-market-rate uh, wages are required in that H-2A program in order to ensure that domestic workers are not disadvantaged uh, in, the, in the marketplace. So there's a lot of reasons in a tight labor market while where employees or people looking for work might choose work other than agriculture. They might want to work indoors. They might want work that's not seasonal. And when the rest of the economy is looking for willing and able workers, agriculture struggles to find people willing to take shorter term outdoor jobs
2: uh john devaney there president of the washington uh, tree Um, fruit association again this is listening into the uh, washington house labor and workplace standards committee in olympia for me excuse me
6: obviously we all remember the discussions we've had over the past session or two Uh, this
2: is representative hoff
6: farmers need farm workers there's no question about that. And farm workers need farmers. It's, so it continually is surprising to me that we can't you know, figure this thing out. Um, but as you look at the dynamics of a farm, uh, maybe a question for John or, or uh, Rob. Can you tell your tree fruit uh, crop when that they're going ripe, to ripen?
4: Can <laughs> you help me with how you schedule that. Well, growers try to plan ahead for when crops will become mature. Many of our fruit growers, for example, will grow cherries, pears, and apples so they can spread work out over time and hope that fruit of different varieties will mature in succession so they can offer longer-term, more consistent work to try to manage around labor peaks, labor demand peaks. But nature doesn't always cooperate. Uh, And some of the tools for being able to do that... uh, are limited depending on how you're farming. For example, uh, if you get a very hot day, you might see maturity accelerate, uh, and you may have very little time in order to pick fruit at the optimal time in order for it to store well. Also, there are some... uh, Uh, chemical means of slowing down fruit maturity for conventional growers that inhibits ethylene uptake by fruit that you might get yourself an extra day or two but if you're an organic producer that's not an option on the table for you. Uh, So there are some tools and strategies to manage around that but ultimately nature is going to either compress or expand that that work schedule for you.
3: So I can tell you that as a leek grower um, so people think there's an off season and we're farming this time of year and you can only pull leaks out of the ground when the ground is not frozen. And if you've noticed outside, the ground is frozen, which means my crew is not working this week. So, so with our all- impacts whether it is summer mm-hmm. or winter.
6: And with all of that said, I, w- I would bet, and, and obviously I have a bias, and I apologize for that. But um, with all of that said, you have, I'm 100% sure, you have the best interests of your uh, of your employees in mind in that how would you indeed operate without those employees? I mean, that it, you just can't, uh, or you automate and eliminate jobs. I guess this is, there's a question in here somewhere. I'm sure.
2: <laughs> this I, is the farming show here on like KTMI.
3: that I beat in, into everybody's head over and over again, but zucchini grows a quarter of an inch per hour in the hot sun and every field we have gets harvested every day to day and a half. And my kids work outside with our crews because it's important for my second generation to understand where the first generation um, came from and what goes into our family farm. And so my family cannot harvest zucchini on their own. It takes every single person that comes and works on our farm to make it all work. And it's it's not as um, they're not just people. We're a farm of families.
2: This is audio from the Let's say it. The House Labor Committee. Thank you very much
3: to our panel. We have to move on to our next. Thank you for your uh, comments.
2: State um, Representative Liz Berry there chairing that committee. She's vice chair of the Labor Committee. Um, So I I don't know how much of that you caught. There was quite a bit of back and forth. It was interesting to hear uh, Representative uh hoff i want to say let me just double check that uh representative hoff jump in there with some questions and his thought on it yes he's the ranking minority member on that uh house labor committee talking about this issue of overtime and agriculture the new state laws that remove the exemption for overtime uh and how they're actually uh, really um, putting uh, farming on the ropes, but also not a good solution for workers either. And some some pretty scary facts uh, between everything there. You know, earlier we heard, uh, it started with Rosella Mosby. Again, she's a veggie grower down in the Auburn area. We've had her here on the program. She's now president of the Washington Farm Bureau. Uh, then John Devaney uh, with the Washington State uh, Tree Fruit Association. Packed with info in his testimony that we just heard there. Um, all kinds of stats and, and context, not just in Washington state, but other states and what's going on nationally and beyond. Um, a lot to digest there. And then some back and forth as well uh, between members of that committee, the legislators who were there, Representative Hoff, um, let's see, Representative, who who was the other one uh, making comments there? I think that was uh, Representative Mosbrucker, uh, if I have that right, as well as the uh, chair there at the end. Uh, vice chair, I guess, of the uh, chair of the meeting, um, because the chair was uh, not there, Mike Sells, um, Liz Berry. So anyway, that is the conversation happening down in Olympia. Olympia, you're going to be hearing more about this. We've been sharing these stories of farm workers who have been negative, negatively, and there are tons of them. Um, Uh, of Of farm workers who have actually been negatively impacted, they've been hurt financially by these new rules that all these folks thought was going to help them, it's actually hurting them because of the practical differences in how the world of farming works. And we've talked about this before on the show. We're going to keep talking about it. We're sharing those videos. Protectfarmworkersnow.org as a website where we're share, starting to share some of this stuff. Also, and um, You can follow Save Family Farming and Protect Farm Workers Now on social media, on, on Facebook, and, and Save Family Farming on Instagram and on Twitter. We're sharing these videos so you can hear directly from the workers how they're feeling about this and let me tell you it's not pretty they're not happy about it they're very frustrated it hasn't been good for them um, and it's very hard to get around that uh, no matter what uh, the activist groups say about different things like uh, dignity and respect and, and all of that those are important things but certainly we're hearing folks uh, from so many folks hard-working farm working farm worker families we're saying, well, that dignity is not the issue that they're they're talking about here. They just want to be able to pay their bills, and this is actually making it harder. Again, it's counterintuitive to folks who don't understand uh, the world of farming, but it is reality, and it's time for uh, Olympia and so many others to start listening to this, listening to the farm workers themselves, not the activist groups that uh, have a political end in mind and just want. Um, different progressive ideals no matter what. Listen to the actual farm workers um, for how it's affecting them. And and something needs to be done about this. Of course, the legislative session coming up in January, it'll be interesting to see what this committee or any other committee decides to take up uh, to address some of these concerns that are negatively impacting farm workers here in Washington State. Again, this is The Farming Show here on KGMI. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Uh, We've got a lot more still to come. Stay with us here on uh, your Saturday morning as we continue on KGMI.
4: Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour, and let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement.
5: COVID-19 has tested our communities in unthinkable ways. In the face of crisis, Puget Sound Energy has given over $18 million in bill assistance to customers impacted by the pandemic, and together with PSE Foundation, gave $4 million in community grants for COVID relief. All the while, PSE continues to lead on clean energy, with a goal to reach beyond net zero carbon emissions by 2045. It's part of our commitment to doing what's right for customers and communities. Together, we're creating a clean energy future for all. Learn more at
0: psc.com slash together. KGMI has been the voice of our community for over 90 years, presenting the news and information that matters here, while also offering you the chance to have your voice heard. And that commitment continues. Start your day with the KGMI Morning News with Deanna Harlock from 6 to 9. And don't miss your chance to voice your opinion on the news of the day with Joe Tien on KGMI Connects each weekday at 4. KGMI is your news talk station.
5: The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group.
2: Recovering salmon here in Yakima and Skagit County and in Washington State and beyond around the Pacific Northwest. We know that salmon populations continue to struggle. And it's a heartbreaking thing to see. Welcome back to The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop with you here on KGMI. Glad you're with us. Well, you know, so if, if this is The Farming Show, why are we talking about salmon? Well, I think it's become so clear to so many people in, in recent decades that, you know, what, what's happening with farming Um, And what's happening with salmon, what's happening with our watersheds, our streams, land use, all of these things, urban areas as well tire all of these things are connected. And there are issues even beyond our, our land use here, our streams here, what's happening out in the ocean, what's happening way far away as we understand the life cycle of, of salmon taking them on huge, long, incredible journeys through. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening to these populations as we see their numbers continue to, to dwindle. And, and and our community continues to come together more and more around the idea of we need to recover these species. They're important on a variety of levels. Um, uh, one of which is food as well. And, and in the farming community, we know about food and certainly our local tribal communities. It's about food, it's about culture, history, uh, spirituality even. Um, And the the commercial fishing community, it's about food and families and, and producing food and managing the land and water and our resources. We're recognizing how this is all connected. So this is so important. And you know, the farming community here locally has been more and more involved in, us hey, let's, let's restore our streams. Let's build buffers. Let's um, build other habitat projects. What can we do with floodgates? You know, there's work that's happening and the more that can be done, but there's also a recognition that there's more to the story here. And this is so this is something that we've talked about before here on The Farming Show. Um, this issue of seals and sea lions and other... As they're technically called pinnipeds, in uh, and it's, I think it's, it's more often near shore waters than an issue way out in on the high seas. There are other issues on these populations there as well, but this issue of of pinnipeds, and the term here is predation, them eating the salmon that we're trying to recover. What is the balance here, and, and and what is this part of the story? Joining us right now is Daniel Schindler. He's a professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Scienti- uh, Sciences. He's also uh, the chair of a study on this issue with the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the program, uh, Professor Schindler, and and thank you for being here. Talk about what you guys were looking into, and of course we want to get into what you have found so far in looking at this part of what can we do to recover salmon.
6: Yeah, good
1: morning, and uh, thanks for the invite, uh, Dylan. Um, yeah, this uh, report we just uh, published was one that was requested by the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife um, to the Washington State Academy of Sciences, to basically synthesize what we know with regards to the science of pinniped predation on salmon in Washington state waters. And, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, science done on this topic. There's a lot of anecdotal, uh, observations from users of the salmon resource and people who care mm-hmm. about marine mammals.
6: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so we had like quite a ball of, uh, of information and data to, to synthesize as part of this report.
2: Well, And also it's become a social and political talking point for some as well. Like, oh, just deal with the SEALs and that'll solve the problem. I think... You know, I'm going to acknowledge, and I'm assuming that you would agree, you know, if we're talking about protecting salmon, protecting our aquatic resources, uh, environments, whatever, there is no one thing. And, and it, it frustrates me. I've said this many times on this program as well. It frustrates me when people try to present, okay, here's this one thing, and if we just do this one thing, it will solve all our problems. That's not true here, and I just want to acknowledge that from the get-go that what we're talking about here isn't the silver bullet. Am I correct in saying that?
1: Absolutely. There are no silver bullets with respect to salmon recovery in Washington. And, uh, the reality is, you know, the pressures on salmon really are quite variable from place to place and year to year and even decade to decade. And, uh, you know, any issue with respect to pinnipeds as predators um, is part of this more complex story about the salmon ecosystem.
2: So I guess a place to start with this, you, you were looking, again, asked by uh, WDFW to study this uh, via the Washington State Academy of Sciences, where you chaired this, this study, which technically for folks who went to look it up. It's the pinniped predation on salmonids in the Washington portions of the Salish Sea and outer coast. What did you find? I think there's even been a question of, is this idea of seals and sea lions and and, and pinnipeds eating salmon, is this something that's actually making a dent? Is this a real problem? Some people say, again, say this is the whole problem. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, but certainly some have said, well, we're not even sure if this is really a factor because there's a lot of other things in play. What did you guys find in that realm?
1: Yeah, so what we did was was really tried to build a story and build the weight of evidence for answering this question about what impacts pinnipeds could be having on salmon recovery. And, you know, we need to start with what we know with very high certainty, and a couple observations there. First, the uh, passing of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the 1970s has been spectacularly successful. Um, the number of harbor seals and California and stellar sea lions in the Salish Sea and on the outer coast has, has really um, exploded in some respects. You know, it's gone up several fold during the last few um, decades. The last decade or so, it's uh, the numbers of these predators appears to be leveling off. Um, but the point is that there are more marine mammal predators out there now than there has been in most of the last century. And to, yeah, to further complicate that is the other thing we acknowledge and recognize is that uh, Indigenous people hunted these things. Um, and it's very possible that we're seeing abundances of pinnipeds now that may actually be higher than they were 100 or 200 years ago, because um, they may have been hunted more heavily than they have, <clears throat> excuse me, have been this uh, this last century. So that's part of the story that you can't discredit. There are more predators out there now than there have been in Mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. Um, The second piece of the story, which again has very little uncertainty associated with it, is these animals eat salmon. Um, Whether it's a harbor seal or a sea lion, um, we know that they uh, eat salmon throughout their life cycle. Harbor seals, for instance, eat young salmon as they leave the estuaries as smolts. Um, seals and sea lions eat uh, salmon as they come back to spawn, particularly in river mouths and at pinch points in the Salish Sea that they migrate through and where they're particularly vulnerable, as well as out there in the, in the broader parts of the Salish Sea. So we know that salmon are victims from some pinnipeds. Um, you put those two things together, and what we also know with a lot of certainty is that the number of salmon eaten by these pinnipeds has increased dramatically over the last 40 years, and it's a really big number. Um, So the fact that it's a big number is something we can stand behind. Where we start to get on thin ice is to translate that number in terms of how many fish are eaten into an assessment of what the impact is on the salmon population. And that's because of the complexities of the ecosystem that salmon and pinnipeds are part of. Um, So that's where we started skating on thinner ice in terms of our ability to make definitive conclusions about pinnipeds, pinnipeds preventing recovery of salmon.
2: Is it kind of, maybe this is boiling it down too far, but is it a correlation versus causation question?
1: It's definitely a correlation versus causation question because we know that as pinnipeds have built up, salmon recoveries have, have stayed flat, or in some cases even declined for certain stocks and certain species. Um, that the tricky part are dealing with the complexities of this salmon-pinniped ecosystem, because pinnipeds are not the only predator eating salmon, and pinnipeds also eat other predators of salmon so then you start asking questions about well what if the pinnipeds weren't here would that mean that there would be more other predators of of salmon um and that's where it's really difficult based on or i would argue it's impossible based on existing data to come up with a definitive conclusion that pinnipeds are the primary reason that uh, salmon stocks are not recovered
2: and again, we're talking with Professor Daniel Schindler with the University of Washington. He uh, was chair of this study effort by the Washington State Academy of Sciences on pinniped predation, or uh, in, I guess, more layman's terms, um, harbor seals and sea lions, and how many salmon do they eat, and how, what effect does that have on the recovery of particularly the endangered species of salmon that we're working so hard, you know, across our, our communities, in our society here, in, at least in this region, to recover. Um, so where do you take it from there? I, I recognize that it's tough to, re, like you said, with existing data anyway, and I'm sure there's a huge need for more information on this complex system. But even with the data that you have, you guys drew some conclusions about some of the impacts that are actually occurring here, and possibly some things that could be done
1: yeah so again we if we stick to things that we can say with confidence um, you know any effect of pinnipeds are probably amplified or expressed at, at high levels in in these pinch points where uh, salmon have to migrate through this gauntlet of predators. Those are the most likely places that these types of effects are playing out doesn't mean they're the only places. Um, but I, I guess one of our other important conclusions is that um, you know it'd be very easy to study this question to death, yeah. Um, by by getting more behavioral observations of seals and sea lions, by studying more detailed, um, having more detailed analyses of their diets, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's a lot we could do from science, but it's not clear that those types of studies would get us to the answer we're looking for, or at least allow us to answer the question we're trying to to answer here. Um, And what that's really probably going to take is to manipulate in an adaptive management framework um, the abundances of pinnipeds. And that is something that... is the very tricky thing to do. Um, There are people who, of course, are very concerned about the welfare of pinnipeds. There are others who are concerned about the welfare and uh, and the uh, abundance of salmon. Um, Policymakers are gonna have to navigate those conflicts and trade-offs, but really one of our key conclusions was that if we are serious about figuring out how important pinnipeds are, to preventing salmon recovery, we probably are going to have to alter the abundance of pinnipeds. Some of this is going on in the Columbia River already where problem individuals are being removed from places, particularly below some of the dams, where um, we know things like sea lions are really (laughs) taking out a lot of uh, migrating salmon. I understand
2: those efforts have seen a little bit of initial success. Of course, it remains to be seen what the long-term impact is, but I've
1: heard some positive things. That's key. I mean, um, some indications are that it's working, but... It is going to take some sustained management effort to really demonstrate conclusively that experiments or management approaches such as that actually work. So we have to be in this for the long haul. We have to be willing to step up and take some risks if we really want to figure this this problem out.
2: What would that look and, like, you know, re- reducing or managing the population of these pinnipeds? I, I think the, the interesting thing, just to step back to the 30,000 foot view you know with the Marine Mammal Predation Act or Protection Act I should say uh-huh. um, in the 70s it put basically an entire ban on doing anything as far as harvest of those animals or, or anything else you know if if some that already you know to me says okay there could be a lack of balance there when other things you know, of arguably similar importance or, you know, in different parts of the food chain or the, you know, predator uh, chain, whatever the term for it might be, you know, all, all of a sudden they own this special, very protected spot where other things may not. That's how you could see potentially things getting out of whack. Could, you know, uh, uh, return of, of um, native, you know, uh, aboriginal type harvests be part of this? Or, or is there something where more technology is involved or even a commercial role for, for addressing some of this? What does that actually look like to manage this population?
1: Yeah, so our report didn't get too deep into those types of details. Um, those details would have to be worked out. Um, they should include both scientific analyses and perspectives about for instance how many animals would have to be removed or if other technologies were used how you know in some cases there are approaches that try to scare animals away or distract them from places where they eat a lot of salmon some of those might work Um, so there was a bunch of options that for things that could be done um, our report didn't get too deep into trying to figure out what those specific options may actually look like in a practical sense um, and that's something that would have to take, be taken seriously before you know managers start start doing things. It should be informed by science. It should be informed by stakeholder yeah. uh, perspectives and, and concerns. Um, but there's distinct risks in doing nothing. Um, mm. You know, salmon are not showing any signs of recovery. As you pointed out at the beginning of the show, they are suffering, from a whole bunch of different reasons from climate change to uh, degraded habitat to predation by things like seals and, and sea lions. So it's it's a multifaceted problem. It's not going to be easy to, to deal with, but the reality is we have to do the science and the management at the right scales to figure this one out.
2: I, I think something that you're saying there is somewhat echoing things that we've been talking about here in the Nooksack Basin and, and some of the other water management things, uh, habitat work, a lot of other things that need to be done here um, that you mentioned earlier, you know, this could be studied to death, but that shouldn't be done. Um I would think there's a time element to that too. We don't have time to study this to death. The endangered, critically endangered in some cases, salmon runs need help now before years and decades of studies uh, can play out.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the one reality is salmon and luckily for us are very resilient species and they're on the ropes, but they're only still around because they can handle a lot of pressure from humans. Um, So we do have some time, but you're right. We can't wait around forever and pretend this problem will go away on its own. Um, We really need to start thinking carefully about how to coordinate both the science and the management on issues like rehabilitating habitat, like possibly managing predators, like how we... um, use hatcheries to supplement. Um, All of those things need to be coordinated. They need to be thought of at the right spatial scales, both for local stocks, but also in the broader context of the ecosystem. And we have to do it for the long term. We can't play around with one year here doing strategy X and another year doing strategy Y. Um, We need to be in it for the long term.
2: And that's how increasingly the farming community feels too. And, and more and more people are saying, let's look at all of the above. Let's not just seize on one thing or the other. This needs to be multifaceted. We need to be pursuing all potential options. We need to hurry it up and get things going because we don't have unlimited time. And I appreciate what you're saying about risk management too. Is there a risk to doing something? Yes. Is there a risk to not doing something? Yes. So let's weigh those out and and find the better, you know, the best course of action rather than simply dismissing things out of hand, which seems to happen all too often with, with discussions that end up being really too siloed on one issue or another.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, we need to be explicit about expressing these risks, <clears throat> both scientifically and socially, and um, we need to, to grapple with how we're going to navigate through those various risks because there isn't a single factor that's the problem
2: here. And just a couple of seconds remaining. Again, uh, Daniel Schindler, uh, a professor with the University of Washington's uh, School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. Uh, He's been researching things with salmon and other aquatic issues up and down uh, the west coast and the Pacific Northwest for many, many years. uh, Very accomplished in that realm. And he chaired this study, Pinniped Predation of Salmon in the Washington portions of the Salish Sea and Outer Coast at the request of WDFW for the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Uh, We appreciate your time. Um, real quick, just in, in a few seconds before we run, you know, what the, the, the things that you guys are saying in this study and the, and the whole team of you that work together, the conclusions that you reached, particularly about potentially needing to manage and um, eliminate pin, uh, pinnipeds to some degree, you know, to, to harvest animals or whatever shape that might take, is not always a popular opinion. H- how has the reaction been, just in a few words?
1: To be perfectly honest, we haven't really had much reaction so far. Um, You know, we recognized when we wrote this report and and published it that it may strike a chord in a positive way with some people and a distinctly negative chord with others. And, you know, our goal was not to try to satisfy anyone or to piss anyone off. Our goal was to synthesize (laughs) what we know, what does the science tell us? And it's really up to other people, namely managers and policymakers, to decide what to do with this. You know, that's not the not the job of the scientist. The job of the scientist is to really say, what do we know and how can we improve what we know? And that's where we ended it. And, yeah, as I said, it's not going to sit well with everyone. And, uh That's something we need to grapple with as a society and as a set of communities is how do we move forward with with information like this.
2: Yep, that's how science should be. It's not always comfortable Uh, (laughs) and it's not designed to be. Professor Daniel Schindler, uh, the chair of this study and a professor at, at UW, thank you for being here this morning.
1: Yeah, thanks for your interest, Dylan.